Let me just go ahead and address something real quick. So I, I know um, with raining outside, there's going to be a temptation for you to begin to listen to the rain and to drift off and eventually fall asleep. And if that happens, we are praying that the Lord will allow the leaks that are happening over here to just be dispersed right over you. There'd be a flood of water. So I'm praying that if it happens, praise God. If not, the Lord still knows. So just keep that in mind. But today we are beginning a new series that will have us walking through some of the book of Daniel, not all of it. Daniel gets super, super deep. Um, and we're not doing all of that because right after Daniel, we're going to jump into Revelation, which covers a lot of the deepness of Daniel, which Daniel gets into. So we're going to save that um, for Revelation. But Daniel is one of the most popular books in the Old Testament. This book has it all. Think about it. This book has history, prophecy, politics, prayer, lions, statues, wild animals, a fiery furnace, a riding hand, dreams and visions, a king who thinks he's a cow, incredible adventure, amazing escapes, angels, demons, the ancient of days, um, the son of man. It has detailed information about ancient history and it has amazing prophecies about the end time. So this book has it all. And we are calling the series that we are jumping into today, we're calling it Stand. Because in it, through this book, we see young followers of God standing. We also see God's plans and purposes forever standing. And we are being called through this book to take our stand in the middle of God's plans and God's purposes that have never and will never fail. And this morning we're going to see that some 2,600 years later, so 2,600 years after what's going on in Daniel 1, we are still being called to stand out. It's where we're going today. We are being called to stand out. We must stand out at the right time in the right ways for the right reasons, knowing that when we do, we are jumping into the channel of blessings that God is sending out into the world. Yet the flip side is also true. When we compromise in the wrong things, in the wrong ways, at the wrong times, it can cost us more than we could ever imagine. So the calling today is for us, as we look at Daniel 1, to stand out Stand out knowing who you are and whose you are. And the beauty is that the theme of this book, so the theme of the book of Daniel is quite simply the sovereignty of God, the control of God in all things. He is sovereign over the big things like international powers, and he is sovereign over the small things like the apparently insignificant lives of teenagers. He is still sovereign over it. He is sovereign over history and sovereign concerning the future. Our God is sovereign, and more on that later. We're going to jump into that. Let me just tell you, this is weird because many of you are sitting in places you normally don't sit, so this is awkward for me. So I'm trying to find like who those people are that normally do this a lot that help me, so hopefully by the end I'll, I'll find those people. But let me just give you a little backstory Before we jump into Daniel 1, a little backstory of what we are jumping into. So King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, maybe as some have heard from VeggieTales, um, King Nebuchadnezzar has, was the king of Babylon when the book of Daniel begins. He was an evil king who destroyed Jerusalem. Um, he was so evil that he just didn't destroy the city. He also destroyed the temple of God, destroyed it completely. And then to add insult to injury, he took the religious instruments that were used in the worship of God as if to say to the people of, of Jerusalem, your, the worship of your God is so obsolete that we're taking the instruments of your worship to show that your God can't protect you. 
All this is happening. And then not only did he destroy the city, destroy the temple, take the religious symbols, but to make it even worse, he essentially said, I'm going to even destroy your future as well as your present. So Nebuchadnezzar had some of his leaders go into Jerusalem and find the sharpest and brightest sons of royalty and basically kidnap them and bring them back to Babylon, where they would be indoctrinated into Babylonian um, culture for a through three years of of training, and then they would become future leaders in Babylonian government. So not only is Nebuchadnezzar aiming to destroy Jerusalem's present hope, he's also aiming to destroy their future hope. Yet into this terrible time in Israel's history, and I say terrible time, it is a terrible time, but it's also what God promised. In the Torah, God promised that if the people disobeyed God, that this would happen. The prophets promised that this was going to happen. But in this terrible time in Israel's history, we are introduced to Daniel and his three friends who ultimately encourage us to trust in the sovereignty of God and to remain faithful to him no matter what temptation comes our way and to do so because we know that God is faithful. So, and we know that God is worth it. We remain faithful to him because he's worth it. So let us now turn to the word We're going to jump in and take our stand um, in the midst of Daniel. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read Daniel chapter 1. And it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that uh, the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the units gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the units to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are or were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs, had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief 
of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let us pray. Father, we come now to your word. And Lord, today we are praying, believing that you would help us to see, Lord, ultimately that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are the hero, God, throughout this story. But yet, Lord, there are examples by which you sovereignly ordain and use for the sake of your glory. Showing us, God, an example that we can also follow you in that way and stand. So we pray today, God, that you would help us to stand and to stand out in the midst of this world. Father, we pray that we would make that decision today, that we are going to stand for you, and that through standing for you, we're going to stand out to this world, all for your glory. God, have your way. Speak to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So when we read this, we get to verse 2, and Daniel used the name Shinar, which um, is the biblical name for Babylon. And so if you know about Babylon, Babylon is not just a location. It represented the whole opposing beliefs and values of the world. So in Babylon, you have the city of the world against the city of God. You have the ways of the world against the ways of God. And this is a conflict that was traced all the way back to Genesis at Babel, all the way to Revelation when Babylon will be destroyed. So you have this um, Babylon picture going throughout, and then what you have is Nebuchadnezzar and his leaders taking sacred articles from the temple of Jerusalem and it's indicating to Babylon and to the surrounding nations that this isn't just a political victory, it's a spiritual victory. They're saying our God, the gods of Babylon, are greater than the gods of Israel. And it's giving that message to the world. And some primary questions that are front and center in this book are, has Israel lost his, its power or has God lost his power? Has God lost his ability? Or will Daniel and his friends survive in Babylon? Will they blend in with the culture that they are being assimilated into? Or another question is, is God's turf limited to the promised land or will God still be God when all appears to be lost? Will God still be God in the darkest places of the world? That is a question to ask. Therefore, Daniel begins this book by reminding his readers that it's not just Israel's king who has suffered loss. God, in a sense, had experienced humiliation because God had tied his name to his people who had now been destroyed and carried off into the world. But then Daniel spends the rest of the book um, vindicating God, showing that God is not out of control. God is completely in control. And I, as I was studying this week, it was, it was, uh, I would read something of a study that was done with our brothers and sisters in the most persecuted parts of the world. And they were asked what their favorite book of the Bible is. And the, the two books that stood out, the top two books, were Daniel and Revelation. And when asked why, when the brothers and sisters in persecuted areas were asked why these were their two favorite books, they said, because these books show us that in the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. That's what we need to know in the midst of this world and all that's going on. In the end, our God wins. 
So I'm going to give you this morning, lay before you three truths that will help us, a, the people of God, some 2,600 years later, to stand out. So truth number one, we stand out trusting in the sovereignty of God. We stand out trusting in the sovereignty of God. And speaking about the sovereignty of God in Daniel, Pastor Paul David Tripp addresses the problem of our understanding biblical texts like this. And here's what he says. The problem is that we tend to miss what Daniel is about, and we make heroes out of the characters in Daniel, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not saying that they're not called heroes of the faith, not saying that we don't learn from them and able to follow them, but he goes on, and the reality is there is only one glorious hero in Daniel. In fact, the heroic nature of this one is the dominant theme of Daniel. And it just really sadly misses the point when we focus more on the action of the human characters and not on the one that is on center stage in Daniel. He says this, Daniel clearly presents to us this God who rules over the affairs of human history and the affairs of nations, and that is the central theme. This is a God who is in charge. He is in control. And the Lord rules, and that is the central theme, not just in the book of Daniel, but in the book of God. All throughout, our God is in control. He rules from beginning to end. This is highlighted when we read verses 2, 9, and 17. If you like underlining um, in your Bible, which isn't a bad thing, um, think about this. Verse 2, and the Lord gave. Highlight those, underline those, the Lord gave. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Look at verse 9. And God gave. Underline those two words. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill. So what stands out here? The Lord gave. God gave. God gave. It's showing us ultimately it was neither the sin or the weakness of Jerusalem and their kings, nor was it the brilliance um, or the strength of Nebuchadnezzar and his people. But it was the sovereign good pleasure of God that determined this historical outcome where Babylon would defeat Jerusalem. God is the giver in connection with our destiny, even when it doesn't appear to be so, as we see in verse 2. He is the giver in connection with our relationships, even when our relationships are most threatened, as we see in verse 9. He is the giver in connection with our character and our abilities, even when those are under the most pressure, as we see in verse 17. God's sovereign involvement in our world thwarts military powers, political powers, and human wisdom. Our God is in control. He is in control. One theologian put it this way. The Israelites are not mere pawns on a political and geographical chessboard. To be in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar is not to be out of the control of God. And here's what we have to understand. Israel in this moment was absolutely in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. But everything was playing out in the hand of God. Everything. That is the providence of God. So understand this. The providence of God means every bit of history that has ever happened or will ever happen takes place inside of God's hand. And God is not out of control, or not one thing takes place outside of his sovereign hand. This is our God. So the collapse of both Israel and then Judah, notwithstanding, the book of Daniel makes crystal clear that the Lord God remains absolutely sovereign over human affairs from beginning to end. And here's the beautiful thing. God's choice of Daniel and choosing Daniel and his three friends was absolutely sovereign. 
God was sovereign over them, but even in the midst of God's sovereignty, Daniel and his three friends also had human choices that they had to make. So we, we get, first of all, we stand out trusting in the sovereignty of God, but secondly, we stand out resisting the indoctrination of man. So we stand out resisting the indoctrination of man. Look at verses 4 through 7. You can see on the screen, then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, youths without blemish. And let me just pause there for a second and say this. Brothers and sisters, it's time that we open our eyes and understand the world from beginning has always been after our youth. They will continue to be after our youth. The world will uh, shout its message the loudest and strongest, not necessarily at us, but at our teenagers. And we can either sit back and go, how dare our teenagers? I didn't act that way when I was a teenager. Or we can roll up our sleeves and get involved. And we can love our teenagers and we can help um, our youth pastor and his wife and others who work alongside him. We can help them um, grab our teenagers and hold tight to them in the midst of all the messages that the world is giving them for the sake of the fact that, yes, the world has plans for our teenagers, but God has better plans. Amen. And he has better purposes. And I pray that we would join him and join Natalie and Eric in praying for our children. God has better purposes for our youth and for our children. Oh, that we would fight alongside them to see those purposes fulfilled. Amen? Amen. Oh, that that would happen. But then he says, so he takes the teenagers to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So they're eating from the king's table. And the chief of the units gave them names. So Nebuchadnezzar was not just interested in education. He was interested in indoctrination. These Verses that introduce us to the beginning of a three-year training period. And it wasn't training, it was brainwashing, what was happening. And it reminds us that there are three mortal enemies for every believer in every age. The three mortal enemies for all of us is, number one, the fallen world system. Number two, our fallen flesh. And number three, a fallen angel called the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, those are our enemies therefore it becomes necessary for us to study Daniel so that not just we survive but that we learn to thrive in our own battles with the world the flesh and the devil because those are all three things that we continue to battle and just think about what it looked like these four teenagers were given new names now why did their names change most biblical scholars get this believe that these boys would have been between the ages of 12 and 15 let that sink in for a second. Chances are their parents were probably not taken with them, but killed. These boys are stripped of their identity. They're taken a thousand miles away from their home. They're crushed of all their dignity, and the king changes their names. Why? And the answer is this, because their original names were tied to the worship of Yahweh. Daniel's name meant my judge is God. Hananiah meant Yahweh has shown grace. Mishael meant who is what God is. And Azariah meant Yahweh has helped. The new names assigned to them all included references to various Babylonian gods, Bel, Aku, and Nebo. Belteshazzar most likely meant Bel's prince. 
Shadrach most likely meant command of Aku. Meshach most likely meant who is what Aku is. And Abednego most likely meant servant of Nebo. It seems like the world is always trying to blot out the distinctive marks of believers by changing their identity. Ultimately, these new names would have served as a tool to tempt these youths into believing that they are now part of the culture that they are living in rather than the culture by which they came from. Every time their new names were mentioned, they were tempted to believe that that's who they are. And brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, we are tempted to believe what the world tells us we are, that we are. Praise God for these young men. Here's what I love, what we're just about to see. When it got to the food, Daniel said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not doing it. But when it came to the change of, of names, Daniel didn't seem to balk against it. Why? And here's what I believe. Daniel basically said, you can call me whatever you want to call me. I'm still God's. You can call me whatever you want to call me. You can give me any name you want to give me, but I will never forget who I am and whose I am. And brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, we forget. We forget who we are, who God has made us to be in Christ, and we forget whose we are. So they were given new names, but then these four teenagers were then fed from the king's table. And it's here that we read in verse 8 that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food. So there are different opinions as to why this was. Some suggest that it had to do with the Jewish food laws, which means this food would have been unclean. Therefore, Daniel said, not I, not doing it. Others, of course, suggest that this food would have been offered to idols before it was cooked. So therefore, Daniel says, I'm not doing that either. And I believe those two things to be true, but I'm I'm convinced that there's a much larger issue here as to why Daniel said no. Daniel abstained because of the temptation to become comfortable in this new world. Meaning Daniel was determined not to let his soul get hooked on the good things that Nebuchadnezzar was offering. See what's happening here. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if I, if I feed them from my table, if I give them my education, they'll eventually look and think just like us. For you see, at, at key points throughout the Old Testament, God's people have lived under two different, completely different types of oppression. Think of Egypt. So think of Egypt. Pharaoh's plan was to persecute God's people. He was ruthless. He put them to hard labor, terrible attack upon God's people. Brutalized them, beat them, made them labor. I mean, persecution throughout. And then think of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's plan was more subtle. Instead of persecuting his captors, get this, Nebuchadnezzar blessed them. He let them live among the Babylonians. He let them serve in his court. His strategy was to welcome them in, immerse them into his culture, welcome them into his world, and give them so much blessing that eventually they say, this is awesome. Why would I not want to be a part of this? And here's the point. This story speaks so powerfully to us because we are prone. Oh, how we are prone to lose our identity in this world. We forget who we are in Christ and we forget whose we are. We forget that. And we begin to buy into the message of this world all, for, all the while forgetting that we are told all through Scripture, do not love this world. 
Do not love the things of this world. It's passing away. Do not do it. And here's what we know. There are still places in this world where their enemy is still using the aggressive tactics of Pharaoh. Brothers and sisters that we've served in or served with in, in India. Satan is still using those aggressive tactics against them. But our enemy is also increasingly, especially in our world, using the tactics of Nebuchadnezzar. Make you comfortable. Let you fit right in where you are. And it's working. And it's still working. And we must stand out resisting that indoctrination. Resisting that kind of assimilation. Which leads us to the last truth. We stand out radiating a commitment to God. So we stand out radiating, displaying a commitment to God. I think of the words of Spurgeon who said this. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. So the world has so the church has so little influence over the world because the world has so much influence over the church. And the reason that this is so often true is because, hear this, we know more about compromise than we do about commitment. We know more about compromise than we do about commitment. Just think about how compromise is shown throughout Scripture. Let me give you a bunch of examples. Adam compromised God's law. He followed Eve's sin, and he lost paradise. Abraham compromised the truth. He lied about his wife, Sarah. He nearly lost his wife, and he lost the opportunity to be a blessing to the nations. Sarah compromised God's word, sent Abraham to Hagar, who bore Ishmael, and they lost peace in the Middle East. Esau compromised for a mill with Jacob, and he lost his birthright. Aaron compromised his convictions about idolatry, and he and the people lost the privilege of the promised land. Samson compromised righteous devotion to God as a Nazarite with Delilah, and he lost his strength, his eyes, and his life. Israel compromised the commands of the Lord. They lived in sin when fighting the Philistines, and they lost the ark of God. David compromised the moral and divine standard of God. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He killed her husband Uriah, and he lost his child. Solomon compromised his convictions. He married foreign wives, and he lost the united kingdom. Israel, again, compromised conviction. They married foreign wives. And, or excuse me, they, they, they did do that, and they committed idolatry, and they lost their homeland. It's what we see here in Daniel. Later on in the New Testament, Peter compromised his conviction about Christ, denied him, and lost his joy. And then Judas compromised his supposed love for Christ for 30 pieces of silver, and he lost his eternal soul. If you were paying attention there, you notice that every compromise I just mentioned resulted in some form of loss. And here's what this means. Oftentimes when you and I, when we compromise, we think, we think we're gaining something and we're always losing something. Anytime we make a compromise for what God's word says to be true, we think we're gaining when in fact we're losing. We're always losing when we compromise. But we told here in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the unit to allow him not to defile himself. Throughout the word of God, 
heroes of the faith. God is always the hero, but those who stand out were always marked not by compromise, but by commitment. In Joshua 14, we're told that Caleb wholly followed the Lord God. In Joshua 24, 15, we're told that Joshua said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah said to the people of Israel, Stop limping between two opinions. Pick one, serve God, or serve your false gods. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul said, This one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, pressing forward to what's ahead. And we get to Daniel 1, and with courage, with conviction, with commitment, Daniel approached the chief of the eunuchs and requested that he be allowed to disregard the king's order so that he would not defile himself. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said, Unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith in God. Let me say it again. Unless there is... An element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith in God. And there is little doubt that Daniel and his friends honored the Lord as they risked their own reputation and they risked God's reputation by doing it God's way. The steward, the chief of eunuchs, basically said, I don't know if I'm going to do it, and gave in and let them have this dietary test for 10 days. And when you read this, it, sometimes it sounds like a one-time event. But we need to realize that these young men stood out day in and day out. For breakfast, they stood out. For lunch, they stood out. For dinner, they stood out. The next day, again, they stood out. They made one decision that set them apart again and again and again and again and again. And here's what we have to understand. If you and I, if we are truly following Christ, you're going to find that the closer you get to Christ, the more you will stand out in the midst of this world. The closer you get to him, the more you are going to stand out. Yet, you're not ashamed to be standing out for him because of what he has done for you. So the test was a resounding success as God blessed them and rewarded their devotion. Verse 19 says this, and we're almost done, I promise you. The king spoke with them, and among all of them was found, or none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. They stood out before the king. Daniel and his three companions remained faithful to their true identity. They obeyed God, and they were a shining testimony, a shining witness of God's providence, his sovereignty, and his grace. You see, God sent these young men to Babylon on a missionary journey. They left all that was familiar to them so that they might stand out as faithful and true witnesses of the true God before kings and nations. And here's the, here's the kicker. They beautifully typify another Hebrew who would arrive some 600 years later, who was also sent to a foreign land to bear witness of the one true God. He was a Jew by the name of Jesus. You might have heard of him. And like, like Daniel and his friends, the Son of God would leave his home while willingly embracing the sinful world without ever defiling himself. Hebrews 4 said he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. I mean, think about this. Satan wanted him, Jesus, to buy into the thinking and the values of this world, but Christ refused, instead choosing the word of God, the glory of God, for the salvation of man. He chose the word of God, the glory of God, 
for the salvation of man. Yet let me end this way. As Daniel and his three friends made choices that made them stand out, we also have a choice to make. Brothers and sisters, we can either blend in with our culture or we can stand out for Christ. Here's a nice little question to end on. Would you rather be remembered for standing out or would you rather be forgotten for blending in? Would you rather be remembered for standing out for the sake of God, understanding that you are his? Or would you rather be forgotten for blending into the ways of this world? Oh, to God, brothers and sisters, that we would stand out. Stand out. Stand, remember who you are. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember whose you are. Stand out for the sake of his glory. For the sake of his truth. For the sake of what God has given to us to do. May we stand out so that we would be remembered and not blend in and forever be forgotten. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to call the musicians forward. And enter into a time where we just seek the Lord and just continue to immerse ourselves in this. And even singing a song that tells us that we must stand. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing, what you're going to do in this series. The series of how we're going to see your followers standing, how we're also going to see, God, your ways, your purposes, your plans standing. How we're being called throughout the whole series to stand. This week, Lord, standing out. Lord, if we are not careful, we quickly can compromise and we can begin to believe the message of this world. The indoctrination of this world. The indoctrination of the enemy. The one who is the father of all lies. And we buy into the lies. But help us, God, to know your words so that we can see through the lies and stand for truth. Knowing that the closer we are to you, Jesus, the more we will be standing out in this world. Father, we pray today that you would convict us of things where we are not standing out, where we are blending in. Even this moment, God, show us ways in our lives by which we are blending in. And help us, God, instead to choose your way, the way that you have promised to bless. And allow your Holy Spirit to work in us. Oh, Holy Spirit, do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.